Welcome to the Valleybrook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. The Book of Psalms is a book of poetry, prayers, and songs that people wrote to God, prayed to God, and even used to lead others in the worship of God. The Psalms give us insight into what a relationship with God looks like and examples of how we can pour out our joys, fears, and our heart's desires to God. Join us weekly as we spend the summer in Psalms. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning, Valleybrook family. So glad that all of you are here with us this morning as we continue our summer of the Psalms. Um, Today is a little bit different story. There's a ton of backstory leading up to this psalm. Uh, looking at Psalm 51, and the title of this sermon is The Slippery Slope to Killing Your Hot Neighbor's Husband and the Road to Redemption. That's probably the longest sermon title that I've ever done, for sure, um, but I think all of this, this title really has significance to the overall story, so I think it's important. Psalm 51 is a psalm written by King David, the psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance, a psalm of redemption. In it, we see the seriousness of sin, as well as the significance of God's love, God's grace, and the need for restoration in our relationship with him. So before we look at the psalm itself, we need to gain a good understanding of the events leading up to the psalm, so we can really understand David's heart and his need for redemption. There's a ton to cover here, so we may move a little bit quickly, so stick with me. And I encourage you this week to study these passages for yourself. It is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I think especially if you spend some time on your own, you'll be able to gain an even deeper understanding of the events and what happened. So I want to start out and read 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 through 4. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman is very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanliness, and then she went back home. So in these four verses alone, we see David's captivity to sin. If asked what David's sin was here, it may be easy to just jump in and say, well, his sin was sleeping with Bathsheba. Like, that that was it, which is true, but there's so much more than that. It goes so much deeper than just that one action. As the chapter begins, we see David... And he begins to make a series of mistakes that continue to grow deeper into sin and deeper into cover-up. In verse 1 alone, we see that David bailed on his responsibilities. David, he was king of Israel. He was called by God to lead Israel, to protect Israel. But it says in the time where kings go off to war, he stayed home. And he sent the whole army out without him. Verse 2 says that he got out of bed. The English Standard Version says the couch. He got off the couch. 
that this one evening, so most likely he had been laying around or napping that afternoon or just kind of relaxing. So he goes up to the roof, he's looking around, he sees a beautiful woman. And instead of looking away and remembering that he was a servant of God, and instead of looking away and remembering the many beautiful wives he already has as king, he continues to stare, and he just thinks about how beautiful she is. In verse three, David has an opportunity again to recognize his sin. He has an opportunity to stop. When David asks, who, this, who is this woman? A man says, it is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This means that she was not only some random beautiful woman across the street, she is also a daughter and she is the wife of a man who is serving in the battlefield where David himself should have been. So he sends someone, instead of stopping there, instead of recognizing, oh, well, I should turn away from this. I should stop. This is the point where I should stop. He sends someone to get her. He sleeps with her, and then he sends her on her way. He sends her home and later finds out that she is pregnant. So a question I have to ask in, in studying this is, why Bathsheba? Like, what was it about Bathsheba that made him kind of fall deeper into this sin and take these actions? So we know that she's a beautiful woman, but David was also king and he was ruler, so he could have pretty much any beautiful woman he wanted. It wasn't like he had to ask her out on a date and go through this, this process of winning her heart and all of these things. As king, all he had to do is say, hey, I want you, you're gonna come and be my wife. Because he was, he was ruler, he was king. And at that time, it was common for a man, especially the king, to have multiple wives. Um, so, but it was also a sin to sleep with someone else's wife. I think this is also what made it so appealing and so tempting. The fact that he should not have Bathsheba, I think made him want her even more. Sin is appealing. That's something we have to recognize about sin. We want what we cannot have, or we at least want what we're not supposed to have. So my son can't have a toy, maybe he doesn't care at all, and then someone else has it, and it just makes it even more appealing, and it's like, oh, well, I want it. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go and, and take it away from someone else. You know, my dog doesn't care about a toy until I squeeze the squeaker and don't let him have it, and then he just wants it so, so bad. You shouldn't eat the whole batch of cookies, you know better but they look so good and so appealing that we don't care about the long-term consequences of eating a whole batch of cookies. Like, so that's kind of how sin is. We want what we cannot have or we know that we shouldn't have. To go back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve could eat from any tree in the garden, but they were told that you cannot eat from this one tree. They knew that, hey, this one tree is disobeying God if you eat from it but they could not resist the desire to take what they could not have. There was something about recognizing, oh, well, I'm not supposed to have that, that made it even more appealing. And sometimes, even if we know the consequences of our actions, we know the consequences of our sins, it's still the appeal and the temptation that just makes us do it anyway. Like I said, with the cookies, you know the long-term effects, or maybe you're gonna have this milkshake that you know is gonna cause 
just issues within your stomach and issues later on, but it just sounds so good, so you drink it anyway. A major problem, though, is that our sin often affects other people. And the more we try to cover up, the more we try to hide our actions, the deeper into the hole of sin that we get. So up until this point, we've seen David sink slowly and slowly deeper into sin, and one small mistake of simply staying home when he should have been in battle leads to larger mistakes. Everything in verses one through four could be covered up, and it could be known by only a few people. So David didn't see any consequences for his actions. But in verse five, he finds out that she's pregnant. So the initial thought might be that people will assume that it's Uriah's baby. You may think, oh, well, well, David's off the hook because maybe it's not his. She's already married. The problem is that Uriah had been away for a long time to war. So it was not possible that the baby would be Uriah's. It was obviously David's child to everyone who knew and obviously to Bathsheba as well. So David had an opportunity here. He could own up to his sin. He could say, he could confess to God and he could admit to people, this is a mistake that I made and I will suffer the consequences. God, please, please forgive me for my mistakes, for my sin. He has the opportunity to own up. He has opportunity to suffer whatever consequences come or he could go deeper and deeper into sin by just trying to cover it up and trying to hide his actions. So in the following verses, we see David continue to try to cover up, continue to try to hide his sin by getting Uriah to sleep with his wife. So he, he brings Uriah home from battle and he's like, I'll just get her to sleep with him. Everyone will think that it's his baby and I'll be off the hook. The problem is that Uriah, he's an honorable man and unlike David, he was committed to his role of protecting Israel in battle. So David has a couple of plans that he starts to take and, and begin to unravel. So we're gonna look at 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse six. So this is plan A. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David from battle, and when Uriah arrived, David asked him, said, how is Joab and the army getting along? How is the, world, the war progressing? And then he told Uriah, hey, go home, relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But the problem is Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what is the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So what David thinks, he thinks, hey, this is gonna work. He thinks Uriah's wife is hot, he's gonna miss her, and he's gonna wanna go home, and all my sin will be covered up. But it doesn't work. So what's plan B? We see in verse 12, says, well, stay here today and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. 
But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the, pal with the king's palace guard. So David, he's stuck here. He's had these two things, these two plans that he thought for sure were going to work. And we're going to cover up his sin, and he would be in the clear. He has another opportunity here to realize his mistake, to own up to it, to pray for God's forgiveness. But instead, he falls even deeper into sin. So I want to show a video here of a little bit of a little modern retelling of what happened next. This is Plan C. Check it out. Hey, man, really appreciate you stopping by and just want to let you know I'm really appreciative of what you're doing in the battle. Absolutely. Happy to serve. Yeah, I wanted to give you um, kind of a, like a promotion. All right. Yeah, I'm going to be moving you to the um, front lines. <laughs> what an honor that is that I've just bestowed upon you. Huh? Yeah, you see, we're needing some like strong people, so I'm going to be moving you to the front lines, you know, to uh, help with the line of defense and stuff. Wow. Um, okay, yeah, um, I'm going to call Bathsheba and let her know. Is that? Better get a move on, soldier. There's a war happening. Okay, because that just sounded like Bathsheba's... Ah! What? I just, um, is... Uh, dude, it's gonna... Good luck out there. Okay, thanks. I just... Die. What's that? I said, you go, guy. You're the best. Good luck. So obviously that is not 100% accurate because there weren't cell phones back then. I'm sure everything else was exactly, exactly right. Um, we see in 2 Samuel 11, verse 14 and 15. So the next morning, this is again right after David got Uriah drunk and thought that he would go home, but he didn't. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he gave it to Uriah to deliver. That letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. So growing up, I kind of thought that it ended there. I thought, well, you're just stationing him on the front lines, and then whatever happens, happens, and probably Uriah would die. But then finishing that verse, it says, then pull back so that he will be killed. This was like a complete and formulated plan that David had as he kind of fell deeper and deeper down this slippery slope. And not only did David ask Joab to have Uriah killed, he asked Uriah to deliver the message. He basically wrote a letter and said, this is what I want you to do. And he said, hey, Uriah, take this to, take this to Joab. So, I mean, Uriah basically delivered the letter saying, kill me. Um, and that's kind of how far David went here. So to wrap up, the story here in verse 17, we see that Uriah and some other soldiers died in battle. Joab sent a messenger back to David and he says, the men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So I think here was also David's opportunity to, you know, get the story of what happened in writing. It wasn't just Uriah that died, there were other people who died, and it may have been that they were just kind of pushed ahead 
um, so that Uriah could, could die, not only because that was the best choice in battle, but it could have been just because that's what David wanted to happen to Uriah. David could have been remorseful. He could have recognized his mistake again, but instead he shows no remorse for the death of Uriah and the other soldiers. After that, he even sends an encouraging message to Joab that nonchalantly says, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one person as well as another. In verse 26 and 27, we see that Bathsheba found out about Uriah. She had a time of mourning, and then David brought her to his house and made her his wife. So it seems that David was in the clear here. Maybe people looked and they're like, wow, that's really nice of David. Her husband dies, and instead of leaving her alone, you know, he brought her into the house, and maybe they think that she would think that she got pregnant after he be she became his wife. Like, you know, it seems like David might be in the clear. Everything was kind of covered up. Maybe he got away with it. Or at least no one was going to ask any questions. You know, David was the king. It wasn't like a lot of people went around like, so David, like, what are you doing here? People aren't going to question the king because you question the king and there can be some major consequences. You could even be killed, obviously. So it seems like he's in the clear. And honestly, I don't even think at this point that David even recognized his sin. I think that things had been covered up and he had covered his sin up over and over. And I don't even think that he recognized it. But verse 27b, the very end of the chapter, says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David thought he was in the clear. He thought no one would ever really know what he did, or at least no one would keep him accountable. But we can never hide our sin from God. So what happened next? 2 Samuel 12, in chapter 12, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David's sin. Nathan doesn't just come up to David and say, hey, you sinned, you messed up. He wants David to recognize his sin on his own. So he tells the story of a rich man and a poor man. The poor man only had one little lamb that he bought on his own. He raised it with his children. There were times where the lamb even laid in his arms. The rich man was unwilling to use an animal from his own flock to prepare for a guest. So he took the poor man's only lamb for himself. In this case, it's Bathsheba. And David was, and, and he sacrificed the poor man's lamb. David was furious at the rich man. And David screamed out, he deserves to die. Like, we need to kill him. Who is this man that you're talking about? And in verse seven, Nathan says, you are this man. Nathan then talks about all that God had done for David, and he talks about some of the consequences for his sin, including the death of his son that Uriah is or that Bathsheba is pregnant with. And in verse 13, David recognizes he admits to his sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. So now that we have a good understanding of the long backstory leading up to this, I want to take a look at Psalm 51. David Platt says that the main idea of Psalm 51 is that sin is an infinitely serious offense against God. But by his grace and mercy, we can be forgiven and restored to God through honest and humble confession. 
So he says, sin is an infinitely serious offense against God, but by God's grace and by God's mercy, we can be forgiven and restored to God through honest and humble confession. So the first point for this sermon, the first point that we can get from Psalm 51 is the fact that sin is serious. Sin is a disease that continues to grow larger and larger in our lives. David's sin began with a sin that many, including David, probably see as not a big deal. David was tired, David was lazy, so he decided to stay home instead of going to battle. Like, that's easy to justify. There's a lot of times where probably every single one of us don't wanna go to work or don't wanna go to school. We're just tired, had a you know, hard day the day before, we've been really busy. So like, he's like, other people can lead without me. I have Joab, there's other soldiers, like they're in good hands. David also got up, the next thing, he got up one evening, he went to the roof to get some air. He was king, it was springtime, so maybe it was hot, it was stuffy inside, not a big deal. And then he, he looks across the road and he sees a beautiful woman and he stared at her and he thought about her beauty. Easy to justify that. It's like, well, it's just a natural thought. Like this is, you know, the thought that, that I have, you know, it's my natural inclination, like so it must be okay. But those three things that many would see as not a big deal continued to grow and he slept with a married woman and ended up killing her husband. Pastor J.D. Greer says, it is easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. If David had been away in battle with his people like he should have been, he would not have slipped into this sin. As we see with David, sin begins small. We put ourselves in situations where we will be tempted and we slowly give ourselves into, give into our sinful desires. And we justify our actions by saying, it's not that big of a deal, or it's natural. So I say we put ourselves into situations where we'll be tempted. That doesn't mean that you're like, what am I gonna do today? There's a situation where I'm gonna be tempted. I wanna go and do that. But there's times where we kinda don't make a big deal out of things, or we, you know, say laziness and we begin to make excuses and that can put us in those situations. Addiction to pornography does not begin the first time that someone looks at a picture they shouldn't at, they shouldn't look at. It begins by staring at women, having lustful thoughts, and it begins to grow deeper and deeper and just take it one step further and it can easily become an addiction that can destroy relationships and can destroy a marriage. Cheating on your spouse doesn't begin by making a decision to do it. Like, I'm just gonna make this decision, I'm gonna do it. It begins with putting yourself in situations where you're alone with a coworker or a friend. Maybe you justify actions because of how it makes you feel, or you make yourself believe that God wants you to be happy. And maybe you take these actions and you blame your spouse. It's, it's her fault, it's his fault, you know, that I did this. A person lying to their boss, to their family, or their friends and getting caught in deep lies does not begin by just kind of telling a lie or a major lie. It begins with a small lie that isn't a big deal. Or it's really just a cover up, but then it begins to grow and grow and grow. 
they just, there are just a few examples of sins that are so common in our world today that people kind of justify. And it all begins with that small mistake and then it grows. James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We're tempted when we're dragged away, we have those evil desires, we justify them, and we take steps into giving in to those temptations. And then it begins to grow and grow and grow. Sin is offensive, and it's not just a sin against other people, but more importantly, it's a sin against God. It completely defies and disobeys God, and it's in rebellion against him. Even the smallest sins and those that are seen by yourself or by others as not a big deal, they're in defiance and rebellion against God. In the beginning of Psalm 51, we see David does not make any excuses. He places everything in God's hands, and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love and great compassion. David also describes his actions by using words like rebellion or transgression, words like guilt and evil to describe his actions. This is all about recognizing his sin and admitting his mistakes. This is how all confessions of our sins to God should be. Verses three through six of Psalm 51 say, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness in the womb. You taught me my wisdom in that secret place. Here we also see that we are all sinful from birth, which means every single person has sinned and we are born with hearts that defy God and destroy others. So I have a son, he's three and a half years old. You probably saw him run up or try to run up on stage during, during music. Like, he is proof to me that we are all sinners from birth because his natural inclination is not to listen and do as he is told. His natural inclination is to be like, no, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm going, it doesn't matter what you say, and if you grab me and try to bring me back, then I'm gonna yell and I'm gonna like swing my arms and hopefully get away and get to do what I want. Like, he has proved to me that, our, that we are sinners at birth. I love him, but there are definitely those times where it's like, the Bible is completely true in this way. <laughs> Verse three shows that sin is always before me. We are never mostly good. Sin is always there in our hearts. We are never good enough. I think a lot of religions and even people um, who talk about Christianity today kind of have the mentality that, well, we compare ourselves to other people and we're like, I'm a lot better than that person. That person's worse than me. And the thing is, we never compare ourselves to people that are like really following God or doing good things. We compare ourselves to people like Hitler and like serial killers and stuff, and we're like, I am better than them. Like, you know, we, we pick someone who's not as good as us to compare ourselves to. But the fact is, we are never good enough. 
The standard is not, you know, someone else that you see on the news or things like that. The standard is God. The standard is God who is perfect, who is pure. And the only way to redemption with God is with confession and a new life from God. So the first one is sin is serious. The second point is God is gracious. David appeals to God's faithful love and abundant compassion when he calls out and he cries for mercy. He cries out for the forgiveness that he says, I do not deserve. David isn't asking God to forgive him so that he can go about his life and live as he wants to live and continue living the lifestyle that he lived without God. Instead, he is craving to experience God's presence and for God to change his heart. Verse eight says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So I love verse 12 when he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Again, he's not asking, God, forgive me so that I can live my life or so that I can go on and do what I want. He's asking for God to be Lord of his life and to restore the joy that comes only from God. The thing is, when we sin, when we fall into sin and we would take those actions, like these aren't things that are really gonna bring joy on a permanent level to our lives. They bring temporary joy, temporary satisfaction. It's like when you eat the whole batch of cookies, that is a temporary joy that does not last. So the key is we have to remember that in our sin, we can only approach God and we can only receive restoration through Christ who died in our place to take on the punishment for our sins. Nothing we can do can really deserve or earn the grace of God. The third takeaway is confession is the connection. True confession to God involves honesty. Again, David is completely transparent to God. He's completely honest. He doesn't try to cover up sin. He doesn't try to blame anyone else or blame you know, the situation or justify it, which is natural for us to make those excuses, but that is not God's way. As we saw in verse seven and nine, David also asked God to purify him, to wash him white as snow. He pleads, turn your face away from my sins, take away my guilt. We have to realize that in order for confession to be genuine, something has to happen on the inside. It's not just about words. David wanted to be purified and cleansed from the inside out. We cannot receive God's forgiveness through just saying words. When we confess, when we ask forgiveness of our sins, it has to be done with honesty, with humility, and with the desire not only for forgiveness, but desire for change. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be made right with God, not by doing a list of good works 
or trying to cover up the evil in your heart or hide it. Instead, it just takes trusting in God's grace and admitting not only your need for forgiveness, but your need for him. The fourth point is restoration is the result of the confession. David does not want forgiveness just to move on with his life. We saw in verse 10 that he wanted God to recreate his heart. He said, create in me a pure, clean heart and renew a faithful spirit in me. He is emphasizing an inner transformation. When we honestly and openly confess our sins and we ask him to be Lord of our life, we are asking for him to transform us and to have our old life, our life before Christ, we're asking that to die, to go away. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new life has come. Simply hiding or ignoring our sin or trying to cover it up is a way to misery. But a life with Christ always brings joy. There can still be consequences for our decisions, consequences for our sin, but sin, but ultimately there is joy in Christ. So what's next? Where do we go from here? Here's a few next steps that I want to give. Um, first of all, if you have never honestly confessed your sins, admitted mistakes, asked God for a new life and made him Lord today is an opportunity for you to do that or to begin asking those questions. If you want to do this or just have questions and you're in service, stick around after service to talk to me or Pastor Clark about the steps to take to do this. If you're online, please ask the hosts for prayer and send an email to connect at valleybrook.cc and we would love to meet with you, love to talk with you. This is such an important decision in your life and if you are ready to do this, don't waste another day, do it today. Secondly, maybe you're a follower of Christ, but through this, God is convicting you of some sin in your life because even as followers of Christ, we all sin. We all mess up. We still make mistakes. Spend some time in our final song and some time this week confessing those sins and cry out to God for forgiveness. The third thing, be like David and take the next steps that David shares in verse 13 and beyond. It doesn't end for him with just a confession and then going on. He says in verse 13, teach and share God's message to others. In verse 15, he talks about opening our lips in praise to God through worship. After that, he also says, walk with God and live a life that is like Christ. So be like David. Teach and share God's message to others. Open your lips in praise to God through worship. And walk with God and live a life that is like Christ. As we go into worship or after the service, if you have any questions, I would love to talk with you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the message that you're able to teach us through the life and through the mistakes that David has made. God, I pray as we go into worship in this final song, God, that you will work in the hearts of our people. God, that you will show us the steps that we need to take to um, come to know you as our Savior and receive your forgiveness or the steps we need to take to um, maybe confessing some sins we've been hi hiding or the steps we need to take to 
share your word and to live more as you would live and less as we would live. Just there, pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.